And if you would turn your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm number 36 this morning, Psalm 36. It's found on page 549 of your Pew Bible. We're doing the Psalms in the summer. We'll go back to uh, the pastoral epistles to 1 Timothy when we enter the fall and kind of get back on our regular schedule. But once again, this morning, the Psalms, Psalm 36, which you'll find on page 549 of your Pew Bible. Martin Luther was deeply concerned about the German people. The Reformation of the church in Germany had begun in 1517, but there was still much to do. Many German Christians were only familiar with the lives of the saints. In fact, they often knew these stories and not the Bible, which was, after all, not available to them in their own language until Luther made it available. Now, these so-called lives of the saints were legendary tales, sometimes true, almost always embellished, that told of the daring exploits of extremely holy people, how they slept in tombs to fight with demons or lived in trees for years at a time cut off from everyday life. The stories painted an entertaining picture but one that was often mythical at best and not very relatable. Without condemning every one of these stories, Luther did, however, propose a solution for the German people. And the solution, he said, was the book of Psalms. In his wonderful preface to the Psalms, he tells the German church that in the Psalms they have, as it were, a little Bible a complete little Bible, a complete treasury of the Christian life and faith. And unlike the legends of the saints, the Psalms give to us and to them the heart of the matter, not the flash. In the Psalms, we get to listen in to prayers, the prayers of God's people as they go through everything life throws at them. In the Psalms, he wrote, we can quote, Look into their hearts and see what kind of thoughts they had, how their hearts were disposed, and how they acted in all kinds of situations, in danger and in need. Best of all, said Luther, the Psalms are full of what he called double earnestness and life. Double earnestness and life. The Psalms are earnest, or we might say today, authentic because they are the words of scripture and the words of prayer. Prayer being, after all, the secret place where we are most honest and open with God and ourselves. Luther writes, What is the greatest thing in the Psalter but this earnest speaking amid the stormy winds of life? And yet as they have double authenticity, they are also full of real life. They speak to every situation we find ourselves in. Luther writes, hence it is that the Psalter is the book of all the saints. And everyone, in whatever situation he may be, finds in that situation psalms and words that fit his case, that suit him, 
as if they were put there just for his sake, so that he could not put it better himself or find or wish for anything better. Well, I hope this has been uh, your experience in your Christian life and your experience this summer as we've studied the Psalms together. Today, once again, we find the Psalms speaking with tremendous authenticity into a situation, into a real-life struggle that every one of us has experienced, and I would guess every one of us will experience this week in some form. At one time or another, probably quite recently, we have all been afraid of the sheer wickedness of our world. We are amazed, I know I am, at how many people seem capable of unimaginable evil. We catch ourselves saying things like, how does that person sleep at night? It's hard to fathom how someone, so many people actually, could traffic a child or shoot up a school. How can we then as Christians live courageously when these very real monsters stalk the land? This psalm speaks to those fears and to those struggles. Please stand as I read it to you. This is Psalm 36, verses 1 through 12. To the choir master of David, the slave of the Lord, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God, your judgments are like the great deep, man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down unable to rise. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do come this morning to put ourselves under the protection of your hesed, your faithful and enduring love and kindness. We do look to you to cover us with your wings and in this hour of study to strengthen us by your spirit to receive your word with joy and to be changed by it. Father, we pray that you would do these things even though we are in the presence of many enemies. And yet, Lord, prepare a table for us. Fill our cup to overflowing and care for us in this hour. 
Father, we pray that you would do these things, that you might be glorified in this wicked earth. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This psalm speaks to one of the most challenging dimensions of living in a fallen, sinful world, a fierce struggle that we all wrestle with. Although many people, maybe most people, have some basic moral awareness, there are many thousands of people all around us who have seared their conscience and are capable of all kinds of evil. The obvious examples are those who abuse children, mass shooters, those who participate in human trafficking, and committed criminals of all sorts. Now, if we're being honest as a society, we even have a bit of a fascination with these people. How did they get like this? How do they live with themselves? How do they sleep at night? For myself, for myself, I've never been able to understand or get over the unholy trinity of evil that we saw in the 20th century. I'm speaking, of course, of Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. These three men were responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of innocent people, and yet they went on vacations. They read books, they slept, and they ate. Not only were they able to function while doing this, but they were also able to lead millions of people who followed their directions. But it doesn't have to be something so historical, so obvious. The reality is that we have all known people who are capable of living in terrible evil for prolonged periods. We've known men who abused their wives and cheated on them for years at a time. We've known the guy at the car dealership who cheats someone every week and enjoys it. We all innately know that we're supposed to fight our sinful instincts, but some have stopped fighting. They've grown accustomed to giving in. Now, as believers, how are we to live in such a world as this? How can we raise our kids with hope and faith when we know these people are out there? How can we run a business or work a job when we know that there will be people with no conscience just waiting to make trouble? This psalm, I think, is about that real-life struggle. Whether it's a fanatical dictator who kills for sport or the husband who lies and cheats throughout the marriage, people can and do suppress their conscience. And this is a scary reality to live in. I think Luther was right. The Psalms aren't about saints who lived in trees and had birds bring them food. No, the Psalms are about real life and real life stress. And this is a big one. Well, David's answer to this fear, and we're all struggling with it, his answer to this fear is incredibly helpful and realistic. It's spiritual, it's subtle, and it's hopeful. And as if he anticipated that sermons would one day be written on this psalm, David gave us his answer in three verses or three stanzas. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can see it there in your own Bible. The psalm breaks down into three stanzas. Stanza 1, verses 1 through 4. Stanza 2, verses 5 through 9. And the final stanza is verses 10 through 12. Each stanza offers a different help for us 
as we wrestle with the shocking reality of evil in the world. Let's look at them together. In verses 1 through 4, David helps us understand how people get this way. We all want to know, how does this person live with themselves? David answers that first. In the second stanza, in verses 5 through 9, David invites us to know God's faithfulness more fully as a response to the horrific evil in the world. God's response to this situation is to continue to be himself. And then lastly, in verses 10 through 12, David rests in God's protection and in his ultimate deliverance through prayer. So those are the three stanzas we'll be considering. So first of all, let's look again at verses 1 through 4, which can help us understand how evil gets a hold of someone. Here's what David writes. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes because he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. Notice how David begins his description with the heart. It all begins with the heart. He writes, transgression appeals, speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. If we want to understand evil, especially this kind of evil, we have to start with the human heart, with our deep and disordered desires. We might not like to admit it, but we all have an affinity for evil of one kind or another. It appeals to us. It appeals to all of us. And this is the ultimate cause of our sin. Now, please don't misunderstand. In identifying the heart as the source, David is not denying the reality of mental illness, past abuse, life circumstances, and many other factors that can play a role in someone becoming violently and perpetually evil. We should always strive to be compassionate and understanding of someone's history and environment. However, none of those things, none of those assessments can make us evil in ourselves. The issue is that those things push us in the direction we already sort of want to go. Evil speaks to us. It appeals to us deep in our hearts. Most of the truly evil and violent people who have lived started out simply wanting more power or maybe a little more money. Transgression sounded good. We often want to call these people monsters to distance ourselves from them, to maybe even suggest that they're not quite human because we don't even want to be related to them as a species. But in reality, their journey to horrific evil began in the same kind of heart we possess. Having identified the heart as the problem, David goes on to trace what I think is a progression then through these four verses. It begins in verse 1 with a loss of fear or awe. David writes, there is no fear of God before their eyes. 
In this psalm, I think fear of God simply means to live in awe of God, to live in humility, to recognize that you're not the center of the universe and that there will be some kind of consequence for how life is lived. The Old Testament and the New Testament introduce us to many people, even people outside the believing community, that had a basic fear of God. For example, Abraham, you'll remember, lied about his wife being his sister. And when God, when it was asked, well, why'd you do that by Pharaoh? Abraham says, I did not think there was any fear of God in this place. God ends up rebuking Abraham for this. And it turns out that Pharaoh, despite not being a believer in the true God, not understanding exactly who God is, yet he has this sort of basic fear of God. And acts accordingly, and Abraham is rebuked by that. Pharaoh knew enough, that Pharaoh, to know there were consequences, that there were basics of right and wrong that were written on his heart. The same can be true of Paul when he arrives in Athens. The Greek philosophers were looking for a maker. They were looking for meaning. Many of the Greek philosophers, if you read them, they taught very passionately about self-control love for others and especially the poor and the pursuit of virtue, the pursuit of the divine. Now, without God's self-revelation, without scripture, they were just groping in the dark. But even in the dark, even in the dark, they could feel, as it were, the contours of reality. Falling into evil then begins when this basic fear of God is lost. We are meant as human beings to Go to the Grand Canyon, stand on the edge, and feel small. We are meant to be in wonder as we walk the beach at night and see a million white stars in the sky. When we hold our first child, we're meant to realize that it all has to mean something and that we are not the center of the universe after all. We are meant to live in awe of things outside ourselves. To quote the old song, I see the bright blessed day the dark, sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. That's awe. That's the beginning of the fear of the Lord. When that is lost, when the world is no longer sacred, no longer, no longer a humbling mystery, well then, people become just objects for my desires. And this kind of sin begins So you can see how critical fear of the Lord is to our existence and to our world. I don't expect, I'm sure you don't expect, our government to enforce a particular religion or denomination in our schools or in public. Our founders did not want one particular church to have full government authorization and financial support. However, our founders did want the fear of God to be taught and to be intrinsically brought into every part of our government. And the free fall that we are currently experiencing culturally comes from the loss of this basic fear of God, this basic sense of wonder and reverence for something outside of the self. In verses 2 through 4, as this progression of wickedness continues, The Spirit of God lays out a pattern of decline flowing from this loss of reverence. 
having lost perspective, having lost a sense of who they are in the world, the wicked man then loses the truth. And we're seeing this right now culturally. Having lost that sense of awe and wonder, he then loses the truth. Look what verse 2 says. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Literally in Hebrew, he speaks smooth things to himself. Not harsh things, smooth things. He says to himself, well, she had it coming. She had it coming. It's not really that bad. It's not my fault. It's not really wrong. It's actually beautiful. If only you could see it from my perspective. The wicked person, having given up fear of God, now loses all perspective on themselves and on truth. One of the most unnerving things you can experience, and you can do this uh, because of all the video outlets we have, is to sit uh, with someone or use you know, an online resource to hear someone's story and to listen to someone who's done really, really horrible things and just listen to them talk. Listening to notorious criminals and dictators, it's often kind of mesmerizing because you get to see how they have created a whole propaganda department in their own head. They really believe they have a justification for everything. We are such liars. We are such liars as fallen man that we even hide the truth from our own selves. I'm reminded of Isaiah's harsh condemnation of Israel Rebellious Israel used to say to Isaiah, don't prophesy these hard things to us. They said to him, say smooth things to us. Say smooth things to us. And isn't it true, shamefully true, that you can always find a church, always find a Christian who will approve any nasty thing you want to do or any nasty thing you've ever done. There's always someone in the church or outside who will speak smooth words. Part of the decline into evil is the prolonged process you enter into of lying to yourself. We hide the truth from the world, but we also hide it from ourselves. All this evil, this progression, and we could spend more time here, but to move on, all of this evil comes to a really striking conclusion in verse 4. David writes, He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Why does the Bible, and this isn't the only place, why does the Bible repeatedly talk about plotting evil on the bed? What is that about? Here's what I think the Bible is after. Some sins in our lives come upon us unexpectedly. We go out our door with no intention of doing that. A temptation overcomes us, and it doesn't make it right, but it sort of takes us by surprise. We fall into something suddenly. And maybe that is where it started for the wicked man of Psalm 36. But now, by the time you get to verse 4, evil lives with him, doesn't it? Laying on your bed at night is when your mind is at rest, right? And so with this vivid picture, David shows us how evil takes care of, takes hold over our entire mind. So that even when we're laying at rest, it's now all he can think about is doing more of it. 
relentlessly evil. The poet Alexander Pope wrote this. He said, vice or sin is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen, yet seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, and then embrace. Now second, in verses 5 through 9, the second stanza, David invites us, having seen something of evil's face, to now look to God and his faithfulness more fully as a response, again, as a response to the horrific evil we see in the world. It's almost as if David knows what, the, what Pope said earlier, Alexander Pope, that by looking too long at evil, uh, we might be in danger ourselves. So he does in these verses, I think, he flings open the doors, as it were, and he invites us into the big world of God's faithfulness. Look at verses 5 and 6. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, Your righteousness is like the mountains of God, that's Sinai. Your judgments are like the great deep, man and beast you save, O Lord. How can we cope in a world where people are giving themselves over to sin? David invites us, and I'm inviting you, to stop and open all the windows and doors of your heart to take in the majestic love and faithfulness of God. If you stare too long at the news, if you stare too long into the abyss that is man's heart, you may never come back. That's what Pope was saying in his poem. Look away then. Look away. Open yourself up and see the faithfulness of God, the perfect righteousness of God. In a world where everyone seems to be selling something, and in which everyone is for sale, God here is utterly righteous, like a crisp, cool breath of wind. In a world where people let you down, and constantly, because they're looking out for themselves, God's faithfulness is like the big sky, the endless sky. In a world where morals are changing so fast, where morals have become like fashions, God's judgments are like the mountains, rooted, eternal, unmovable. Now that we are here, we could, of course, stay all day in this middle section. We could look through our lives individually, our Bible, our world, the history of the world, and spend the whole day just seeing the goodness of God. But I want us to focus on just one attribute from this second stanza. David uses this word, three times in this section. And I think it's the beating heart of what he wants us to hear. The word in Hebrew, maybe you know it, is the word hesed. It means covenant, faithful, enduring love. It is 1 Corinthians 13, all rolled up in one word. It appears in verses 5, 7, and 10, and the ESV translates it as steadfast love. Steadfast Love. David did not invent this word. No, that would never do. God gave this word to us in what might be the most important revelation of the Old Testament. The reference is, and you heard it earlier, Exodus 34. 
God has agreed to show himself to Moses. Moses has seen the burning bush. The patriarchs have met and even eaten with God's angels. But now God agrees. He agrees to pass before Moses. Here are those words. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, abounding in hesed, keeping hesed for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. At the ultimate moment of revelation, God called himself the one who abounds, who overflows in hesed, in steadfast love and faithfulness. And these are the very words, and this is not an accident, these are the very words David took and used in his psalm. The only way to survive the overwhelming flood of despair that comes when we see the world's evil is to throw open our hearts to hear this revelation. Despite it all, despite it all, God is still full of steadfast love. But we have to go further than that. As this light breaks into our hearts in verses 5 and 6, we have to remember that not only is God all these things, and that does lighten our hearts, but he is all these things for us. He is all these things to us. And so that's why you have verses 7 and 8. Verses 5 and 6 say, hey, look, remember, this is who God is. Open the windows, let the cool air in. He is wonderful, he is gracious, he is faithful. But then verses 7 and 8 say, remember, though, that as he is this, he is this for you. He is this to you. He is this in your life. Look at verses 7 and 8. How precious then is your hesed, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They get under it. They experience it. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. Hesed is not just this sort of distant thing in the sky or in the heavens. Hesed is what God is for you and for me. To express this, David resorts to two really wonderful images. The first, of course, is a bird or a mother hen, maybe. In a violent and unpredictable world, we take refuge under God's wings like baby chicks. It was this coverage, this safety that Jesus offered the Jews You remember how he wept and he said of Israel, how often would I have gathered you under my wings, but you would not. But we have, as Christians, come under those wings. We found shelter in the storm. It's not just that he's faithful in some kind of laboratory sense, but he's faithful to me and for me. And how else can we survive and live with courage in such an evil world? The second image after the bird image is the image of host, God as host, hospitality. 
We feast, David says, from the abundance of your house and drink from the river of your delights, or literally in Hebrew, we drink from the river of your Edens, conjuring up the thought, the image of the Garden of Eden. The imagery here is reminiscent of Psalm 23. Remember what the psalmist says there, my cup runs over because God is such a great host. My cup runs over. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The greatest wonder of all of history is this, that God did not turn away from our wicked and ruined race, but instead he got to work on a new home for us with him. But that's what, that's what Hesed does. That's what faithful love does. Faithful, steadfast love does not turn away. Faithful, steadfast love becomes a wing of shelter and a home, a home of grace. This whole glorious meditation, and we could spend weeks on it, I'm sure, this whole beautiful meditation is made only the more beautiful, I think, by the context of evil and it reaches its climax in verse 9. The Spirit of God in David wrote, verse 9, wrote all of this, but I think especially powerfully in verse 9. For David writes, For with you is the fountain of, your, of life, and in your light do we see light. As Gerhardus Voss, great theologian, once pointed out, when the prophets, men like David, reach sort of the pinnacle the highest point of joy and wonder. It's just coming out of them who God is. And this really is that pinnacle in the psalm. It's at those moments, at those crescendo moments, that so often we see the clearest predictions of Jesus Christ. It's where they reach a level of prophecy where in their joy, in the Holy Spirit, they can see for the first time maybe at a distance who Jesus is. And so the New Testament is not at all, not at all shy about claiming verse 9 for the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the fountain of life that David is seeing that is with the Lord beside him? Well, listen to the New Testament's take. John 1, you heard this, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. To the desperate woman in John 4, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 8, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then lastly, Revelation 21. And he said to me, it is finished. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The final answer to our world's horrific evil, to the monsters that walk among us, and to the monster that unfortunately lives in every one of us because of sin. The answer is the Hesed of God his faithful love, and as it is perfectly embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. So first, David gives us a picture of what is going on 
with the evil man so we might understand it. Second, he invites us to open our hearts and minds to receive with joy God's grace, his faithfulness to encourage us. And then lastly, you see in the third stanza, the final stanza, verses 10 through 12, that we're to throw ourselves upon God in prayer and to see by grace the future he has promised. Oh, continue, or literally in Hebrew here, oh Lord, extend Extend your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. And then in a moment of really prophecy, where he is now seeing the future, he says, there, I see it. The evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. David here asks God now in prayer. And this is, I think, in many ways, the ultimate practical answer to our fears. To go to God in prayer and to ask that his has said, his wings, his steadfast love might be extended upon us. Now remember here, brothers and sisters, that when David says uh, the upright in heart, he doesn't mean the perfect. He doesn't mean, he means us. He means believers who are sincerely seeking to follow God with all our flaws and failures and all those things. And he's crying out in prayer here saying, Father, extend over these, your people, those who are upright, those who sincerely love you, this protection. David then in verse 11, I think, really prays for himself as the king. He says, don't let my wicked enemies destroy my kingdom, take my throne, have their hand upon me. He faced some really unique struggles as God's Messiah, as God's anointed one. And he's praying, Lord, protect me from those. And then finally, this wonderful vision. I see it. By faith, I already see it. They cannot win. They can't. They cannot win. God's word will prevail and God's king will reign. And so in prophecy, in the spirit, David can go ahead, just as we can as Christians. We can go ahead and say, you've already lost. You can't win. If you've ever been, and and this is not a, a simple or easy topic, but if you've ever been in the presence of demonic suffering or demonic evil or um, a situation where you sense there's something demonic going on, you might find yourself in prayer. I have a couple times saying, you know, you've already lost, right? You've already lost. That's what David's saying here. By the Holy Spirit, he can see that whatever happens to him, they've already lost because Christ has already won. And so his prayer is full of hope and faith. As we close, I want to share with you three just very simple, clear applications of our text. I don't always do that, but I want to do that this morning because I think this is a text that begs for that kind of application. So just briefly, three things. First, how wonderful, how precious to have a friend or a church who will tell you the truth. When we think about that portrait in verses one through four, that person who has now given themselves over to wickedness, and by the time you get to verse four, there's nothing left. They have no conscience. Nothing's restraining them. Key in that development, I think, is that speaking smooth things to themselves. If you have someone in your life who you know will tell you the truth, love that person, respect that person, thank that person. 
Never belong to a church that will not throw you out. Never bother to join a church that will not throw you out. Be in a church that is committed to throwing you out if you do certain things. How precious to have people who will not speak smooth things to us. For the wounds of a friend are faithful. Second, when you're overwhelmed with the 24-hour news cycle, and you're overwhelmed with the incredible evil in our world, and let me just pause and say here, we have a couple people in law enforcement. We have a lot of people in medicine in this church. And, and the, the amount of evil that you all see is incredible. Um, I talk to many of you privately. It's, it's just overwhelming. Those of us who just watch the news are overwhelmed, so how much more so those of you who are actually responding uh, with lights and sirens to these things and are taking in the wounded victims and just seeing all this play out all the time. You must look to God. You, you've got to throw open the windows of your heart and mind. I hope that's why you're here this morning. You have to have times in your life, pretty much every day, where you stop and you look and you remember the chesed of God, his faithfulness. I remember in seminary taking courses in counseling and uh, David Pallison and others, uh, wonderful men that taught me. And I, I can't remember which one it was. It was Ed Welch or David Pallison. But I remember them telling, especially those who were going into counseling full time, who were just going to hear every day these horrible things that were happening to people. He would encourage them, put some flowers in your home or in your office and look at them and remember the goodness of God in the midst of all that darkness. If you're getting overwhelmed, you're finding yourself to become cynical, you're becoming angry, you're disinterested in your fellow human being, what you need more than anything is to hear about the chesed of God, his loving faithfulness, to remember his judgments are like the mountains, his faithfulness is like the sea. And you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that David uses nature in all of that? And isn't it true that it's usually in nature and through nature that we're encouraged. We don't just open the doors of our heart. We often open the doors of our home or the windows of our car, and we take that breath in, and we see the sun shining, and remember, oh, that's right. Man is incredibly wicked, and God is incredibly good. And third, above all, hear God's invitation here in this text to host you in your life journey through this evil world. Jesus calls you in this text. He calls you aside and he offers to you a cup and a meal. Jesus knows that walking in this desert is difficult, that it's full of robbers and wild animals, that it's dangerous. And yet here God wonderfully invites you and offers to be your host, to host you in this desert of affliction with all these evils around you. He says, come in. Come into my home. And so the psalmist writes, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup is always overflowing. Surely, goodness and hesed will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, indeed, evil is all around us. Our homes and hearts and lives are full of it. 
And yet we have also, through your Son, come into your home, under the shelter of your wing, strengthen then your people, with the knowledge that though evil may be great, your steadfast love will endure and will in the end overcome the evil. How we thank you, Father, that that victory has already been won by the one who embodies your hesed, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn our eyes upon him and give us courage in this life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.